keeping with our Sunday evening tradition, short-lived traditions are still traditions, we want to take a few minutes and speak together um, concerning questions that we might have had from this morning's message. So if there's something that during the message or during the course of the afternoon that you wanted to ask about or maybe clarify or ask for something a little further from what we shared this morning. So uh, let's take a few minutes for that. Anyone had something from this morning? None whatsoever. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, join me in Hebrews chapter 5, and we're going to actually do a little survey and think together about the ministry of the high priest. When we arrive at the obedience passage in Hebrews chapter 5, the idea of being obedient to a priest inside a Jewish community would not have been a foreign idea. In fact, it would have been a normal thought. Priests had a great influence on the community. There are a few movies that you can watch that kind of give hints of how that was. When you watch movies like Fiddler on the Roof and you see some of the Jewish culture and the influence that the priests had in the community and the respect that was given to them. Of course, that's very late in Jewish life far, far later than the New Testament, but it was sort of a flavor of what that community was like. Priests in other religions um, have that kind of authority, and even preachers in some uh, particular uh, strains of Christianity. I have a friend who is from India, and in India, in almost all of the culture, the priest or the preacher actually arranges all the marriages. My friend Raj and his wife Martha, their wedding was arranged by their preacher in tradition, in Indian tradition, because in India prior to that, uh, Christianity coming there, priests of all the different religions would actually arrange the marriages. I love hearing Raj and Martha's story. They did not physically meet each other until two days before the wedding. Think about that. And when they met each other, they met in a pastor's office apart from each other and barely even were able to look at each other. And... Then the kind of kicker for the whole thing is they spoke two different languages. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's not so much already that guys and girls don't already speak two different languages. 
even if you speak English, you speak two different languages. But uh, they literally spoke two different languages. And uh, in their culture, you move in with the, the, the husband's family. And so uh, the interesting thing about Raj and Martha's story after all that is, is that Martha was from one region and Raj was from the other region. And the regions, the food was as different as South Louisiana is from sort of northern Ohio. And so Martha said she nearly starved to death before they realized that she just needed some rice. And uh, so it was some interesting stories about that. Mentioning that because that kind of influence flowed out of how the Hebrew priests have operated. Incredibly influential when we look through the Old Testament, it is to the priest all the offerings were brought. It was the priest who had the capacity to pronounce forgiveness of sins. The priest was a medical practitioner. He would let you know and diagnose whether or not you had leprosy. He also inspected clothing and animal skin for a kind of mold leprosy. He inspected houses and could decide whether the house was going to stand or be torn down based on a kind of mold that would grow inside the house that was referred to as like a leprosy. He could determine you were going to keep your material belongings or not in your house if they had been infected with this what was called sickness. He could determine if plaster that you had put in could be kept in your house or needed to be torn out and replastered based on whether or not this sickness or mold or leprosy was in the plaster. The priest's strictness upon their life, they could not own an inheritance in the tribes of Israel in the land. It was said that the Lord was their inheritance. If a priest's daughter was caught being unfaithful, she was to be burned rather than stoned. A priest could not operate with any blemish whatsoever. He was the tithe collector. He was the tax assessor. When a poor man came who could not pay sufficient for a sacrifice or a restitution, the priest had to determine if that man's ability would allow him to have some kind of substitution for this tithe or levy or this charge against him. The priest was the one who gave valuation of property and assessment for what was called the year of the Jubilee. He assessed what the value of homes and cattle and land and property. He was the one who assessed all that. 
If a woman was accused of adultery within the Hebrew community, the book of Numbers tells us that the priest had to give her a test. If the husband was suspicious, if he was jealous, he had to bring his wife to the priest, and the priest actually had a very intricate test that she would have to take to determine if she was being faithful or not. The priests were given the charge to carry the Ark of the Covenant, and they alone were to handle it. The highest and holiest act of a priest was that the high priest was the one who carried out the Day of Atonement sacrifice that happened once a year. And the high priest was the only person allowed to enter the most holy place and stand before the Ark of the Covenant of God where the cherubim are there enthroned above the mercy seat and where the glory of God hovered over it. The high priest alone could enter and view that specific presence of God. That day is still called Yom Kippur, the day of covering, the day of atonement, and still celebrated in Israel today, although not in the same way. The priest had such authority that Jesus recognized that. In Mark 1.44 and in Luke 5.14 and in Luke 17.14, those three occasions, Jesus told lepers that he cleansed to go and show themselves to the priests because only the priest could declare a man clean. And so when we study the ministry of the high priest in the book of Hebrews, and we come down to this particular setting where the Bible says to all those who obey him. So join me in Hebrews chapter 5. And we're going to hear a lot about priests in the next few weeks and about the ministry of the high priest. And it's important that as we enter that, that we not become bored with it because the detail that the writer to the Hebrews will go into has great significance because this is the way that God chose to reveal the Messiah. He chose to reveal Him first through the ministry of the priesthood and the high priest. So when we read through that, and in the coming weeks we kind of get into some details about it, it will be important for us to appreciate that those intricacies were all important to God and therefore should be important to us. But in chapter 5, if you go down to verse 9, and having been made perfect, we talked about that this morning, he became to all those who obey him i want you to look at that for a moment all those who obey him that's five nine now come with me to deuteronomy chapter 17 This will give us 
uh, one more specific role of the priest. We'll start in verse 8 of chapter 17 of Deuteronomy. Spend a minute there and then back to Hebrews. If any case is too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, between one kind of lawsuit or another, between one kind of assault or another, being cases of dispute in your courts, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses, so you shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall inquire of them, and they shall declare to you the verdict in the case. And you shall do according to the terms of the verdict which they declare to you from that place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to observe according to all that they teach you, according to the terms of the law they teach you, according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the word which they declare to you, to the right or to the left. And the man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest who stands there to serve the Lord your God, nor to the judge, that man shall die. So when we think of the priest and the authority that he carried within the Israelite community, his word was so binding that the penalty of death was hanging upon anyone who refused to obey him and his office. So back to Hebrews 5, what we find is that Jesus is called the mega the great high priest. And as such, this verse is not a surprising conclusion to the idea of his priesthood. Certainly, being the Son of God, he deserves our obedience. Being the Creator, he deserves our obedience. But in the Jewish community, this would be something very familiar to them and would make perfect sense if Jesus has, in fact, been ordained by God as the great high priest, then there is but one response that we can give to Him. And that response is obedience. This is for us becoming more and more foreign to Christianity. I grew up in the period of time where there was kind of a theological battle during my early ministry years. It happened in the late 70s and blossomed out in the 80s. What had happened was because of some teachings of some particularly popular preachers of the day. The idea of grace came to mean that a person could accept Jesus as Savior, but at the same time refuse Him as Lord. What this became known as was the Lordship Controversy. 
Two of the heads of the controversy, Zane Hodges out of Dallas Seminary Venue, which is a very good seminary, even though there was some disagreement there. Uh, Chuck Swindoll has served as president there. Great, great institution. And John MacArthur in his seminary, the Master's College and Seminary, kind of became the battleground for this because the Hodges group was very oriented toward the idea that grace is such that simple belief engages a person into salvation and lordship was considered an unnecessary work added on to it. John MacArthur did an excellent job writing two books that I think every believer would profit from. One is called The Gospel According to Jesus. It's an excellent book. And it's about Jesus' clear calling that to follow Him is to obey Him. And that to have faith in Him and trust in Him is to do as He says. He also wrote another book called, and I'm thinking the title is correct, The Gospel According to the Apostles. And in both of those books, John MacArthur did a very good job saying what the writer to the Hebrews is saying in one verse. The idea of separating salvation from lordship is not scriptural. The idea that I could call Jesus Savior with no sense of obedience, adherence to His Word, no sense of trust in doing what He says, is completely foreign to the Bible. But the problem is is that we have become exceedingly comfortable in modern Christian circles with the idea of commending to people assurance of salvation while they are in rote, clear disobedience. Now we have to be extremely careful here because we tend to one of two extremes. One is legalism that says if you don't follow all these rules, you're just not one of us and you must be going to hell. That's not what we're talking about here. The other is this kind of licentiousness that says as long as at some time at your life you acknowledge Jesus as Savior, certainly you're going to heaven even though you may live a life that is completely apart from Him. Well, the Scripture teaches us that those two ideas are on the extremes. But there is this place where in Hebrews it's made very clear, and so many other places in the Scriptures, that faith is always demonstrated by obedience. Unbelief is always demonstrated by disobedience. Now, there's nuances there because the danger is you fall into kind of a perfectionism and we need to always get away from that because that's not what is being spoken of. There is no doubt that all of us sin and, if you are willing to admit, probably frequently. And that does not in itself say that that is a disobedient lifestyle. Very often we can have an extreme desire and heart of obedience and find ourselves falling short in many areas. The kind of obedience that is spoken of in Hebrews 3, 4, 5 
that leads us into the conclusion of Hebrews 6 is an obedience wherein the heart is bent toward Christ with a loving, submissive desire to do His will. Though it struggles, though it wrestles with weakness, though it has to run to the throne to find mercy because of failure and grace because of weakness, it still has as its desire the desire to please the Lord. That's the fundamental desire of obedience, is the desire to please the Lord. Paul said it this way, Therefore we have as our ambition, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, whether absent or at home, to be pleasing to the Lord, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive our reward, whether having done good or evil. So this ambition is a heart's desire of obedience and a desire to actually please God. It is not perfection. It is direction. Let me give you a specific place the Scripture calls it out. Come with me to Jeremiah. Um. I love this passage because the Lord has used it in my life on several occasions as reminder. How many of you have ever been in town <clears throat> that as you were driving through the town, you came to a set of road signs and all the road signs were pointing in the direction you were going, but they, they said things like North 110, South 410, West 571, East 22. They were all on that one sign, and they all in that moment were actually on the same street. Okay? I believe that false obedience is the idea that when we are all passing together through certain portions of life, it appears we're all going to the same place. But our mind are all set on different destinations for different purposes. At that moment on the highway, everybody looks like they're going to the same place. That's on a, on a Sunday morning when everybody gathers in church, it looks like everybody's headed the same direction. It just does. It just looks that way. Those are the times we're in the same town, we're passing through. And, but as we walk out and we carry on with the hidden and not hidden parts of our lives, we actually go off on the direction that we're really on. There are a lot of times we look like we're going to the same place because the highways all merge at that place. But there are four destinations coming out of that. There's a north, a south, an east, and a west. And only one of them can be right. Now, in the book of Jeremiah, in what to me is the best sermon Jeremiah preaches, it's chapter 2. Jeremiah makes a charge. Now, you're going to see where this comes into the obedience. And we'll close with this. Jeremiah makes a charge. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord. 
And the whole sermon, I don't have time to go through. But in verse 5, he says this. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find me when they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? That's a great statement. What you chase after is what you'll become. That's pretty good. Well, their response was, what are you talking about? Us? We're in church every Sunday. Come on. You know, we're every Sabbath, we're just all up there and doing the songs and, and sacrificing. What are you talking about? Well, the sermon goes on and uh, says in verse 11, has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder and be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Here they are. Evil number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Evil number two, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, what's interesting, they all said, what are you talking about? Us? But he does something in just a few verses. It's like dropping a bomb. Come down to verse 18. What was happening was because they weren't serving God, the enemies began to encroach. Political strife and turmoil began to occur. Social disorder, restlessness, and military confrontations begin to occur. And because the Lord was not blessing it, and He was taking away from them the blessing of protection that He had promised upon them while they served Him, they began investigating other defenses. While going up to the temple and making pretense that they were walking with God, then God says, oh, you want some evidence? Look in verse 18. But now what are you doing on the road to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? You see, God was lifting the protection off of them. Enemies were encroaching. And so they were going down to Egypt to find protection from Egypt, this godless nation, because God was withdrawing His hand And he caught them in their negotiations going and trusting Egypt. And he said to them, if you're walking with me, how come you're on the road to Egypt? Then he goes, oh, Egypt's not enough? Look in the second part of verse 18. Or what are you doing on the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Now, he's using several kinds of metaphors here. The first metaphor is a drinking place. He was the fountain of living waters. They have forsaken him. Remember that out of the mountain in the middle of Jerusalem in the city was this wonderful spring that came up that was much celebrated. It was a picture, a metaphor of God giving life to them and Him being the fountain of living waters. And so these they have forsaken God, and so now they're down drinking the water of the Nile. Metaphorically, they're trusting in Egypt and its gods and its military forces. So they're drinking the water or they're running up to Assyria to drink the Euphrates. This is Babylon. They're going up there and they're trusting in them. 
And so there's several metaphors going on. One is the place of drinking, another is the road that you're on. And so he's saying, if you're really walking on the path with me, if you're saying, okay, I am, it's, it's, it's really simple. If, if Bill Mount called me and Bill said, hey, Bart, um, I am on my way uh, to Atlanta, Georgia. Because that's the place I want to go because I know it's your hometown and it's a great and glorious town. And I'm on my way to Atlanta, Georgia. But I passed Bill on I-10 West headed for Houston. And I would say, hey, Bill, I thought you were headed to Atlanta. Oh, I am. How come you're on I-10 West headed to Houston? Oh, you saw me? You see, we can make pretense in worship of obedience. But the highway we're traveling in our heart is the one God knows. He knows where every heart is headed. He knows what we love, lust, and like. And He is watching us. And so if we make a pretense of obedience coming into church but yet our hearts are actually on the road to Assyria or on the road to Egypt. Our our hearts are on a road away from God. It is God who is taking note of that, even if no people ever notice. So when we get to, let's go back to Hebrews, obedience is not absence of sin and it is not perfection. Obedience is the direction your heart is set on. With all of its scrapes and stumbles, with all of its trips and slides, with even a few back steps, obedience is that base path where you, inside your heart, where I, inside my heart, is where we're headed. And that person is the one that is given the assurance of salvation. Not about perfection. Don't go there. But about direction. I may have to crawl on my knees on I-20 to get all the way to Atlanta. And I may sleep on the side of the road exhausted on my way. But in my heart, I know where I'm headed. And God knows where I'm headed. And that's what He looks at. So faith in Christ is demonstrated by obedience to Christ. Don't be tricked that faith is some mental ascent while our heart is headed down the wrong path. The two come together. My head, my heart, and it flows out of my hands into what I do. Bow with me for a moment. Interesting, these words of Jeremiah. Because they've rung in my head. And they were never comforting when they rung in my head. They were always convicting They were always ringing in my head saying, what are you doing on that path? What are you doing on that road? 
not the right road. You know that. Don't take that road. If, you're, if you've taken it, repent and get back on the right road. God knows and God says, well, what are you doing on your way to Egypt to drink the water of the Euphrates? What are you doing on the road to Assyria to drink uh, Egypt, the Nile, and, and Assyria, the Euphrates? What, what are you doing on that road? Why not come back to God, to the fountain of living waters, and walk with Him on the path that leads to life. My encouragement to you is this evening, there's an area of disobedience that reveals the wrong path. That you would reckon with that tonight. And speak plainly with the Lord because He speaks plainly with us. He knows our desires, our lusts, likes, and loves. He knows them all. And maybe tonight would just be a moment of repentance because we've taken a diversion, an offshoot from the path that we know we're supposed to walk. And then praise Him because He's always nudging us back to where we need to be. It's a great song we're going to sing. He leadeth me. Would you stand with us as we sing?